find yourself in a world that no longer makes sense. When you realize that a man like Epstein didn't Epstein himself. When the police are defunded, but Pakistan gets a gender studies grant. You may be in the Collapse Experiment. Hello and welcome to the Collapse Experiment podcast. This is episode four of the Great Narrative for a Better Future by Klaus Schwab. And this is me reading through the book, uh, giving my own little commentary on what old Klaus has to say about eating the bugs, having no privacy, and you will be happy. So, what do we have going on today? This this is page 40, and if you're looking for something to fall asleep to, I'm in the middle of, let's see here, four pages of one continuous paragraph that uh, has a lot to do with the GDP. That, that sounds fun, very entertaining. Hopefully I don't fall asleep. So let's get to it. But for what sort of growth are we measuring and what sort of growth do we want? The pandemic and the great financial crisis, 2008 to 2009, that preceded it have made it clear that GDP is an inadequate measure of progress. Wow, it only took them how many decades to figure that one out? It is supposed to measure our common prosperity and global economic ascendancy, but there is now quasi-universal recognition that it does not capture what matters most. Climate action. Yeah, because that's always been considered when it comes to uh, GDP. Sustainability, inclusivity, global cooperation, health, and well-being. Let me just point out, they really don't care about any of this shit, okay? So we've got here climate action. These are the same people that fly around in private jets, and uh, God knows how much uh, carbon they emit and how much they consume. Um, it's, uh, It's very contrary to how they live their lives. Sustainability... Uh, that I can get on board with, but quite frankly, I don't think they care. Uh, inclusivity, that is just uh, some commie bullshit right there. Uh, global cooperation, you don't want global cooperation. You don't. You, you want people to compete in order to keep prices down and keep production going up. And, uh, you know, it, it helps with the economy uh, the world economy for people to compete, global cooperation, that's just bullshit. And uh, health and well-being, they don't care about your health and well-being. Uh, we know that from the uh, experimental medical procedures that they were pushing not that long ago. While economists and policymakers acknowledge that nations need economic growth to recover from the pandemic, they also want to ensure that this growth is of a quality compatible with human, societal, and environmental well-being. Therefore, they want an instrument that measures how nature is affected by our decision to produce and consume. Well, if you're going by nature, you just wouldn't produce anything, right? Isn't, isn't that how it works? Like, <laughs> you just put everything back to nature. Oh, Agenda 21, right? Let's see here. Um, that includes important but not financially remunerated contributions to society like childcare and volunteering. 
child care, meaning you're not parenting your children, somebody else is. Uh, volunteering, we don't want to pay you for the same work that uh, you could get paid for. <laughs> or that takes into consideration how profits are distributed. <clears throat> Communism. GDP measurement takes none of the aforementioned into account. The move to replace or supplement GDP with a better measure of human progress goes back to Simon Kurtz, the economist who conceived GDP shortly before World War II while immediately recognizing that it, his creation did not account for society's well-being. As Robert Kennedy said a few decades later, GDP measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile, including the health, education, and welfare of children. The search to propose alternatives to GDP has been going on ever since. That's, that's a long-ass time to have something else. Uh, Robert Kennedy, so that's the 60. This is what we're going on. 50, 60 years after Robert Kennedy. That's awesome. Uh, ever it includes, among others, Bhutan's gross national happiness, Malaysia's quality of life index, the genuine progress index indicator, the better life index endorsed by the OECD, and the One Earth Balance Sheet Project. <laughs> okay. Uh, all aim to complement or even replace GDP with social and or environmental factors, but propose different methodologies to do so. While the quest continues using GDP per capita, i.e. per person, instead of total GDP, maybe best. GDP per capita captures a crucial phenomenon ignored by most alternatives. The population decline faced by some countries, Japan proves the point. Most narratives depict, <clears throat> depict it as a hopeless case of nation that combines population decline and no growth. But when the data adjusted for demographics and total GDP converted into GDP per capita, Japan does better than most. Its GDP per capita is high and growing, and since 2007, its real GDP per member of the working age population, a still narrower definition than per capita, has tended to rise faster than any other G7 country. So yes, they're making an argument for uh, population decline. Less people. Less people means better GDP. So do they want GDP or do they not want GDP? Because they're now using it as an argument for a lower or declining population. As the world ages and a rising number of countries experience net negative population growth, GDP per capita will be the best metric. So they want to keep GDP, just how they measure it. Interesting. Uh, it, can, it can rise even in a recession if the population shrinks more than total GDP, offering a less alarming picture that would otherwise be the case. <clears throat> so they want to use the same numbers. They just want to measure it in a different way. The arguments <clears throat> for choosing per capita GDP include that it tends to correlate with measures that are strong predictors of life satisfaction, happiness, uh, such as life, higher life expectancy, better social safety nets, lower infant mortality, mortality, and poverty levels, less air pollution, and corruption. 
And less corruption. Uh-huh. This is born out of the annual World Happiness Report, whose latest edition ranks just one country with a GDP per capita under 15,000, Costa Rica. Among the top 25, none with a GDP per capita over 15,000 in the bottom 60. So 15,000 a year, I believe that is under the poverty level in the United States. Interesting. So they're trying to say that uh, poor people are happier people. Hmm. In the coming years, no matter what happens with potential substitutes, many leaders will persist in their obsession with GDP growth maximization and therefore GDP will continue to underpin most decisions made in economic policy. However, as the world inevitably moves in a direction that uses a different lens to measure progress and become more conscious of the need to preserve what GDP doesn't measure, like biodiversity and social cohesion, we may take the view, at least in rich countries, that living with a few basis points of lower GDP growth doesn't amount to a catastrophe, particularly in the countries that score well in environmental and social performance indicators, i.e. whose growth is balanced and of quality. We might even find we can live with such a scenario quite happily. This is not a rhetorical question. Consider the following. Would you prefer to live in a country that ranks consistently among the highest in terms of subject, subjective well-being, happiness, and abides by stringent environmental standards with unimpressive but decent rates of GDP growth, or in a country that grows at an average of 1 to 2 percentage points higher, but scores lower in environmental and social terms. Ah, uh, hmm. So, wait, wait a minute. So, so you won't have growth, you won't have an improving uh, economy at 1 to 2%. 1 to 2% is, is pretty low. 3% is about average for, for most countries. Uh so they're saying that 1% to 2% would be advancing the economy. Otherwise, you, um, let's see here. Would you prefer a 2% growth rate in a pristine, socially stable environment or 4% in a heavily polluted place with little social cohesion? Hmm. Yeah, I don't see where it's one or the other. There's... There's definitely several other alternatives to that. And uh, I, I love how they only give you two examples. Like, these are the only two options that you have. Uh, take it or leave it. And then it's like, really? There's, there's nothing else. <laughs> At one extreme, Japan's high living standards and elevated well-being indicators offer a salutary lesson that there is hope even in a quasi-abundance of total GDP growth, but decent GDP per capita growth. In our conversation, Shu Yamaguchi called this situation the completion of civilization, adding, I wish to call it a plateau society, not a climbing society. Japan in the 20th century was a climbing society climbing the mountain and catching up with the United States and the United Kingdom. It worked very well, but doesn't anymore. This is not stagnation, but a completion of modernization. This argument is reflected in the consumption habits of some affluent consumers 
They may express a desire to replace conspicuous consumption and material accumulation with new markets of distinction, like experiences instead of physical goods. Uh, they range from concerts to culinary experiments or visits to remote destinations, often with a purpose and are found in services the non-tradable sector in which it's much harder to improve productivity. This entails less GDP growth, but could be seen as a sign of social progress. Uh, everything that they just promoted here is the shit that they shut down during COVID. A lot of these industries, a good portion of these industries don't exist anymore. Want to go out for a nice dinner? Sorry, restaurants close. Oh, want to go to a concert? You need a jab or, or face diaper or sorry, uh, you're going to have to do both. Um, a lot of this, so what they're pushing for, what people should be aspiring to uh, is stuff that they definitely want to also control. No, you can't go here because you didn't get your jab. So if this is going to be the new standard of society, it's also a new standard of control. They can't control whether or not you own something. I mean, they can, but if you own something, it's yours, and it can also be handed off, right? So this is the whole thing of, like, getting away from property. You ever go to an estate sale? That's, that's when you figure out how much you are worth at the time that you die, Right? Or at least your family does. That's you handing down your wealth to somebody else. They don't want you to hand anything off to somebody else. They don't want you to accumulate things that have value. <sighs> the situation is very different in poor countries and developing countries in general, where GDP growth will continue to matter considerably. Dambisa Moyo uh, pointed this out when affirming that <clears throat> we should be very worried about politics or policies that inadvertently uh, prejudice people in poor countries. I could be wrong, but I suspect people who say we could reduce our living standards are people who are already wealthy. If you have no access to energy, no access to healthcare or education, the prospects for the next generation are pretty poor, which is true for emerging markets where 90% of the world's population lives. What? <laughs> The growth proposition is still highly attractive, which is why China obviously become, becomes a big player in the story. Oh, and now we're off to the next section. Public indebtedness. Alright, let's see how much further... Oh man, this seems to be a fairly big section. Let's see how far we can get. All right, 2.2.2.2, uh, public indebtedness. Yes, it's 2.2.2. That's, <laughs> I don't know why they decided to break the book up like that, but whatever. The last four decades saw largest, fastest, most broad-based increase in total debt levels around the world. In 2021, it tripled to 350% of GDP with public debt alone reaching almost 100% of GDP, a rise much amplified by the pandemic. Yeah, because you're a bunch of assholes. Uh, since COVID-19 began its onslaught, okay, 
It's comparable to the flu, but whatever. Governments around the world have dispersed $17 trillion, the equivalent of 16% of global GDP, on fiscal support while central banks expanded their balance sheet by an aggregated uh, aggregate of almost $8 trillion. Yes, this is why we're starting to see problems with inflation now and why they're going to try to push towards a new currency. Try to get some money out of your bank. See what happens. It is hard, if not impossible, to tell at which precise level government debt becomes problematic. Recent policies suggest that the critical question is not how much, but what for. Hmm. Obviously, public debt incurred to prevent a collapse of our economies and societies is distinct from the incurred to find an unproductive policy agenda. Uh, it may be for this reason that much higher levels of public indebtedness than in the past are now being tolerated with markets seemed unconcerned for the moment. Government debt cannot expand indefinitely without causing major problems and in the end, that is, in the very long term, it must be dealt with via higher growth, higher inflation, or default. I have a feeling they're going to push towards default. And I have a feeling it's going to be this whole um, uh, equity bullshit of like, oh, you are this person, therefore your dollar is worth this much. When we transfer it to the new currency. Oh, you're this person? Well, good for you. You're getting more. Debt monetization, an emergency option, will only go so far. Barring higher productivity, a possibly considered, a possibility considered below, higher growth of sufficient magnitude is not a given. For all the reasons just mentioned, if robust long-term higher growth fails to materialize, a toxic mix of low growth and elevated inflation could arise. This risk of a scenario involving inflation and default occurring is at its greatest in emerging markets and developing economies. Inflation, or rather its absence, played a key role in the buildup of public debt. Its absence. No, the the effects was were delayed because all that money that got printed went into the stock market, and then, in a way, the debt trickled down, because with the printing of money came inflation. Yes, the stock market is inflated, highly inflated. Uh, it really should not be where it's at, and that's because of free money being pumped into it, and then that slowly started to affect everything else below it in the market. Its disappearance for many years, no, not really, meant that central banks not only tolerated rising budget deficits, but facilitated them. As governments boosted spending without a commandant increase in taxes, they issued bonds to finance the resulting deficit. Mm-hmm. In turn, central banks bought those bonds from investors as part of the quantitative easing programs. Yes, quantitative easing. Uh, it's been so great for the last 15 freaking years. By doing so, they increased the interest rates in which governments borrow. As stated by Sebastian, Sebastian Malaby in the Age of Magic Money, 
A financial ministry that sells debt to its national central bank is roughly speaking borrowing from itself, just as central bankers are blurring the lines between monetary policy and budgetary policy, so too are budgetary authorities acquiring some of the alchemical uh, power of central bankers. There's there's a lot here. Um, we do know that before COVID, banks li- were lifted, the FDIC lifted the stipulation that banks had to have so much money in savings in order to loan out a certain amount. Um, that's gone. So where it used to be for for every dollar that you had in savings, you could loan out $8. Um, now there's no limit. Banks are basically printing their own money by giving out loans. Um, and, and here's the real kicker. Banks, anytime they issue out a loan to somebody... There's supposed to be proof that they have that money sitting aside that can actually be paid for that thing, whether it's a house or a car or you're you're financing a a dishwasher on a credit card, whatever it is, like the banks are supposed to have that available. And they don't. They they absolutely don't. They just issue the debt and you're supposed to pay it back even though the bank itself does not have that money. It doesn't exist. The fact that global public debt is now at a post-World War II peak while central bank balance sheets in the past only reached similar heights at times of war makes the normalization of fiscal and monetary policies difficult, creating daunting challenges for policymakers, particularly at the time of resurgent inflation. While interest rates will start increasing, the sustainability of the debt will be immediately at risk. Debt servicing costs for governments could then rise dramatically. Yes, there's a huge issue right now, and it's the fact that the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. And every time it raises the interest rate, it also means that, what is it? I believe the interest payment for the $30 trillion that our government owes right now is something like $1.2 trillion a year is just the interest on the debt of money that they've already spent, and they keep spending more. So yes, um, this is going to have a snowball effect where they're going to issue out more money, which is going to devalue the dollar, which is going to make those interest payments and not on the actual principle of the debt that is owed, therefore accumulating more debt while printing more money. Yes, we are turning into, what, 1990, 91 uh, USSR, where they tried to print themselves out of debt and the whole Soviet Union collapsed. Awesome. Uh, Maybe, maybe it won't be as bad as Germany in the 1930s. Uh, We can hope. But uh, this is this is the path that we are on right now. Um, I love how they're talking about it. Like there there is no inflation, and because there's no inflation, they can just keep doing this until something bad happens. But I have a feeling uh, as we continue on, um, they're gonna make a an argument for a new currency. So. Anyways, uh, that's about it for me today. We're going to stop here. I believe we're at page 45. And we will continue on there next time. Remember, you are the carbon they want to reduce.
Thank you for listening to the Collapse Experiment podcast. For more content, check out thecollapseexperiment.com where you can find the latest news articles. If you'd like to help out this podcast, check out books by Matthew Gilman on Amazon. Or you should just buy gold and silver. Just just buy gold and silver. It's, it's a better investment and uh, you might actually have something to trade later on when the world <laughs> falls apart.